Um, so we have been in the middle of a series called Swipe Right, um, and we began the series by looking at two myths that you often hear in church. Now, sometimes they're not explicitly stated, but they're implicitly stated. The first myth is that being married is superior to being single. And if you are single and have been in the church for any period of time, there's probably been at some point where something has made you feel that being married is superior to being single. And what we said using the words of Paul is that both being single and being married are gifts and callings, and we should steward them well. One is not superior to the other. But the second myth we looked at was this idea that sex is bad or that sex is dirty. And we said using Song of Solomon's that being a sexual being is a good and beautiful gift from God. Um, and I really just first, I want to thank um, you as a church for your graciousness during this series. Uh, when you are talking about love, sex, and relationship relationships, there are landmines all over that you could step into. And one of the things I appreciate and I love about our church is that we are able to have honest conversations, thoughtful conversations, um, without being nervous. Um, I, and so some of you have sent me great emails and texts and have talked to me after service, and I just really appreciate your feedback as we've gone through this um, series. What I hope will happen is that what happens here on Sunday will be a jumping off point for conversation in your community groups um, and around uh, dinner tables and at coffee shops throughout this week as you wrestle with what we've talked about. Um, and it's okay to disagree with me. You're wrong, but it's okay to disagree with me. Um, so uh, I really do hope that this, th these sermons are the first step um, in a conversation. And then next week, Pastor Angela is going to conclude um, this series. Um, but the second myth that we talked about um, was that sex is just physical. And we said that sex isn't just physical, but instead it involves the whole of our being, body, mind, and soul. And then last week, we heard an incredible sermon from Jonathan Martin um, where he talked about our identity being rooted in the kingdom of God and not whatever the things that everyone else wants to root our identity in, whether it's our job or success or whatever, or relationships, right? Our, our central identity is in the kingdom of God. Now, today, I'm just going to give you a little uh, disclaimer. It's a bit of a downer, right? Um, it's a bit of a downer. There's some things I'm going to say that you're going to, midway through, you're going to be like, why did I get up this morning to come to church? It's snowing and cold. Um, but so let's just dive in. How is that for a lead-in? <laughs> I want to talk about the myth of romance. We've been lied to, and the lies we've been told are ruining our lives. I asked um, Jessica Breslin if, uh, if that created tension at the beginning of a sermon. Good, any good speech should have tension at the beginning. And she's like, I'm not sure if that was tension or just intense. But I believe it's true that, that we've been told a lie about relationships, and that lie is ruining our lives. And the lie is this, that love equals, that love equals romance and passion. Now, I blame Disney because real relationships don't involve knights in shining armor or soulmates or gleaming castles or, above all, happily living happily ever after. But fairy tales have been engraved in our consciousness and they make us feel as that if that's what a real relationship should look like. Now, of course, Disney doesn't bear all the blame. The stories we inhabit, the stories we read, the stories we consume, along with a bit of biology, have formed us into individuals who long for spark and passion when we meet the one. 
right? When we glance across the room and see that person, we want like fireworks and there just to be this intense energy between that person and ourselves. And when that happens, then we know that the phone is ringing. Then we know that that is the person we're supposed to spend our life with. That person who makes us giddy and causes us to throw caution into the wind. That person, and this is the scene that we've seen played out like a hundred times with different scenarios. But that, you know, that person that causes us to rush to the airport at the last minute before the door closes to the plane and that relationship is gone forever. I mean, we've seen this play out a hundred different ways. You know, you rush to the airport just as the door is closing and somehow TSA never trips them up. There's never a line at TSA. They rush to the gate and it, it plays out different ways. Sometimes the person got delayed and they're standing there waiting. And then other times the door has closed and our heart sinks because we know the relationship is over. But then the door opens back up because there was a mechanical malfunction. And luckily that person comes off and they hug and they embrace and then I mean the music soars and there's a little tear in our eye and it's a beautiful moment but that's not love in fact more than likely more than likely it's a curious concoction of hormones and unfilled childhood desires and physical attraction that's infatuation a short-lived intense passion which at most sparks a journey towards love now, we all have an idea about how love begins, but it's how love ends that it's the tricky part. Love at its best is a space where we can open ourselves up to another person and still be accepted. Love at its best illuminates our strengths and our weaknesses. And now, the space where we believe that love happens best, or that Christians believe that that happens best, is an institution that has a bit of an, Im an image problem. And that institution is covenantal marriage, where you commit yourself to another person for a lifetime. Now, the image problem comes because way too many marriages do not end with happily ever after. A large percentage of your parents' stories did not end on a happy note. Some of your own stories did not end on a happy note. Some of you are in the midst of a relationship dissolving at this very moment. And what started out as a fairy tale has become a nightmare. And part of that, I believe, is because we have a misunderstanding about what love and romance are to be or are. For most of human history, marriage was based on reason, or at least what seemed to be reason. Your families were in the same social class, or it helped expand your family's holdings, or maybe it helped expand the tribe. Or marriages were arranged by either the community or your family. Love and romance had absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, often you had no say or no choice of who you married. It converted strangers into relatives and tribes. Marriage was designed to pull families together, often for political and social gain. Now, of course, you know, arranged marriages have a lot of pitfalls, and, what ended, and it ended in terrible, no-good situations for a lot of people. And so there was a shift. Oddly enough, this shift actually takes place because of the Protestant Reformation. But there's a shift in the West where marriage is no longer based on um, practicalities or reason or because it helped expand your family's land holdings, but marriage is based on love and feelings and emotions. We could do an entire sermon about how the Protestant Reformation and particularly Martin Luther impacted that. 
But today, in most Western cultures, relationships and marriage are based on romantic feelings, on passion, on that feeling that you get, the butterflies you get in your stomach. And the problem is we all come into relationships, particularly marital relationships, expecting that our spouse, the person that we've committed ourselves to, will fill some need or some longing. Now, often we are not quite with it enough to realize that's what we're expecting, but most of us at some level are expecting our partner, our spouse, to fulfill something inside of us that we need, whether that's a loneliness or whether that's that person makes us feel better about ourselves or whatever the case might be. There's something that we expect as we come into that relationship. But the problem is, the problem is, is that that doesn't happen. And then things begin to go wrong, and that then, when things begin to un- go wrong and that relationship begins to unravel, our natural tendency, particularly for those of us who believe in a soulmate or the person that's the one, our natural tendency is to begin going and looking for another person who can provide us those warm, fuzzy feelings again. Clearly, we must have gotten it wrong because this relationship, which seems so right, now seems so wrong because now, instead of looking across, each, uh, looking across the table the candlelit table at one another and staring deeply into one another's eyes, you are yelling at one another and arguing over the dumbest things you can possibly imagine. And so then what happens is that you realize at some point that maybe this isn't the person you're supposed to be with. Harvard scholar Robert Epstein has done research into marriages, and this is just one of the lovely, uplifting points I have for you, for those of you who are considering getting married. Um, He's done research into marriages and discovered that on average, after a couple years, it's between 18 months and 24 months, that the average couple, um, based upon the survey he's created, their, their love in that relationship will be cut in half and the amount of sex that they have on a regular basis will be cut in half. And that happens within the first two years of marriage for the average couple. And so we often wake up and discover that we're with the wrong person. We married the wrong person. There has been a horrible mistake. But there's some hope. In the New York Times, there's an opinion writer who said this. And, and the reason I'm, I'm quoting from uh, this passage um, from the New York Times is because I actually think it dovetails beautifully with some of the writings of Paul. But this article said this, the good news is that we mustn't, that that it doesn't matter if we find we've married the wrong person. We mustn't abandon him or her. We need to swap the romantic view for a tragic and at some points a comedic awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us and we will, without malice on our, uh, without any malice, do the same to another person. And there can be no end to our sense of emptiness and incompleteness. But none of this is unusual or grounds for divorce. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. That's another gem that just is uplifting. The author then goes on to talk about how when we commit ourselves to another person, we commit ourselves to them through the good, the bad, and the ugly, we open ourselves up to transformation. Christians would call this sanctification. We believe that Christian marriage is one of the ways that God uses to shape and to transform us because one of the things you discover in a committed relationship is that things come out of you that you didn't know existed, the good and the bad. 
through the commitment of marriage, our partners point out the dark places in our lives. Returning back to the article, he says that whenever casual relationships threaten to reveal our flaws, we blame our partners and call it a day. You know, we've all done this at some point, whether it's a friend or romantic relationship. And as for our friends, they don't care enough to do the hard work of enlightening us. Most friends, it's like there's a point. It's just not worth it. And one of the privileges of being on our own is therefore the sincere impression that we really are quite easy to live with. This is true. Before I married my wife, I was one of the easiest people I know to live with. And then after we got married, I don't know what happened, but I became significantly harder to live with. Which, this then sets, this then sets up Ephesians 5 from the Apostle Paul really well. And now Paul's this guy... As Jonathan Martin mentioned last week, Paul is not a romantic. In fact, he's probably the anti-romantic. He's never been married. He's kind of gruff around the edges. He's a zealot about everything he does in life. He's just an awkward dude. And so he's got these words on marriage that this particular passage has tripped a lot of people up. It begins this way. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Now we're, on, we're all on board, but then it gets a little more awkward. He says, wives, understand and support your husband in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way that Christ does to his church, not by no- domineering, but by cherishing. Now, chances are some of you have grown up in churches that have used this verse to tell women, you need to submit to the leadership of your husband. In fact, I've had people say to me here at this church that I feel it's my job and my role to lead my family, to lead my wife. In Paul's world, this was the dominant view, right? Christians, secular, everyone kind of held this view that the husband, the man, was to be the head of the household. And in that day and age, particularly if you had any money or land, you weren't only the head of like a household, you were kind of head of a mini corporation because there were all kinds of endeavors you had going on. You had farms and land and all these different things. And the husband was the head of this mini corporation. But what Paul is beginning to do slowly and slyly is he is flipping on on the head what it means to be the head, what it means to be the leader. And he uses as the example the way that Jesus leads. What Paul is setting up is mutual submission to one another, which is often twisted to be about domination over another person. And what Paul wants to say is that for Christians, leadership is not about domination, it's about service. Think about this. One of the last things that Jesus does before he leaves earth is he invites his disciples to a meal, a meal that he has prepared for them. And then as they arrive, Jesus, the one who proclaims to be the son of God, as far as people on earth go, he's got about the highest, he claims to be about as high as you possibly can be in the hierarchy. Jesus, the son of God, as they arrive at this last meal that they're going to have together, he takes off his towel and begins to wash their feet. He assumes the role of the lowliest person serving the other. And what Paul and what Jesus both say is that if you want to be great, if you want to be a leader, you want to be the head. To be a head means you are a servant. Paul then continues, husbands, go out Go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not by getting. Christ makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. 
And that is how a husband ought to love their wives. When you view it within that framework, this passage takes on a completely new meaning. Marriage at its best is about sacrificial love and seeking the best for the other person. Relationships at their best, whether it's a friendship or a marital relationship or a romantic relationship, is about seeking the best for the other person during the good times and the bad times, working to bring out the best in the other, especially in the bad times. Marriage is unique, though, because two people have committed to stay together for life. It is easy as a friend to bail, but when you've committed to stay together for life, it takes on a different dimension. Marriage is not about uniting two perfect people. It's not even two people completing each other. No, it is seeing what God is doing in the other person and says, marriage says this, I see, Christian marriage at its best, says, I see who God is making you and that excites me and I want to be a part of who God is creating you to be and I want to partner with you on that journey. When looking for how to live a good Christian marriage or Honestly, when you're just looking for how to have good relationships, the ultimate example comes from Christ and his radical commitment. The, the word that we find in Scripture is covenant. Right? God covenants with us. Coupled with, it is, a, it is the combination of a radical commitment or covenant coupled with sacrificial love. And that's what good relationships look like, where you bind yourself to another person. And you give of yourself. Now, there are moments, just like the disclaimer, there are some relationships and there are some people who are so broken, who are abusive. And those relate, you need to get out of those relationships. This is not a sermon telling you just to keep taking abuse because you, you know, it's, it's, it's going to work out someday and we're committing ourselves. There are some relationships where people are so broken where it's just, it's not going to work. But for most relationships, the commitment of seeking the good for one another allows you to work through the bad times. And as you do that, it begins to bring out the best in you because you are transformed if you invite the power of the Spirit into your romantic relationships or even your friendships. And here's the thing. The best marriage passages aren't even about marriage. The best relationship passages aren't about relationships. They're about how Jesus models for us what it means to be fully human. Going back to Ephesians 5, Paul says it this way. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all, referring to marriage. He's not married. Paul's like, I honestly don't understand, and particularly in light of what we read in 1 Corinthians 7, he's like, I honestly don't understand why anyone would commit their lives to another person, because I like my own personal freedom, and I love traveling around starting churches. It's a mystery to me, which is really generous and humble of Paul to say. It's a mystery to me. He's like, I don't, I don't really know how to give you marital advice. But then he says, but what is clearest to me is the way Christ teaches treats the church that's the clearest way i know and this provides a good picture of how husbands are to treat his wife loving himself and loving her and how each wife is to honor her husband what we hear over and over in scripture is that when our love fails god's love remains steadfast we get an image of love that is self-sacrificing always seeking the best for the other the problem is, so many of our relationships are based upon passion or on mutual whatever we can get from the other person, right? What can you do for me? And Christian marriage and Christian relationships are based on what you can do 
for the other person. It is a self-sacrificing. This is the image of marriage at its best. But it has to be mutual. There has to be this mutuality for this to work. And within this committed and self-sacrificing space, covenantal relationships become one of the tools that God helps us to look more like Jesus. Because it becomes a space where we can be fully known and truly loved. And this knowledge liberates us from the, pre- from the pretense that we have it all together. Because the person that you wake up with in the morning before you have your coffee knows you better than anyone else. And they know the things that you want to hide from everyone else. Because all of us go into relationships, whether they're marital relationships or romantic relationships or whether they are friendships, we all go in with some sort of facade. And often the facade is not even simply, you're fooling yourself because you are presenting the person you wish you were, not the person you are. And this is very painful to admit, but one of the things that I realized, like being married was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life because I, there was brokenness inside of me that was exposed to me. The brokenness that I didn't even know existed. And through the course of marriage, I saw myself for who I really was. And it was so painful. It was so painful. But marriage has also been the best thing that's ever happened to me because Charla and I have committed ourselves to each other and we have committed to working through our problems. We've committed to working through our demons together and inviting the Spirit's power into our relationship. And I, I, like... I've been married 12 years. I don't know. I've been married a long time. And Charla's not here. Don't tell her. Uh, I think it's 12, 2005, August 2005, August 5th, 2005. Yes, okay. Um, Make sure I still remembered. I'm not feeling well today, so give me grace. Um, I have changed so much, and there have been so many things that have been illuminated to me that often were in other relationships I was having, work relationships and different things like that, that I didn't even realize. And it wasn't until I was in a committed marital relationship that some of, these, some of this brokenness began to come to the surface and I was able to address it. And there's something powerful about being in a relationship where you're both committed to the good of the other and where you're seeking the good of the other and there is commitment and honesty because there were so many times in our relationship where it would have been so much easier to just bail because it just was too hard to keep going. Sometimes people act like, and I'm sure there are, there are some marriage relationships that are just amazing, um, and they just don't have problems, and they don't argue, and it's all love all the time. That is not our relationship, and I think sometimes we do a disservice when we stand up here and act like, you know, well, you know, by the power of God in our lives, you know, we, are, we have this wonderful marriage. And it's just, like, it's difficult. Being married and living with another person is difficult. And if someone tells you different than that, either they are a way better person than almost anyone on earth, or more than likely, they are lying. (laughs) Covenantal marriage becomes a beautiful space for transformation if there's the commitment to stay, even after the butterflies have long disappeared. And love, which is more than, and love is more than romance. Love is a combination of intimacy, and intimacy is built through physical relationships. This is one of the purposes of sex. It's designed to create intimacy within us. But love is a combination of intimacy and commitment. It's a choice to love. Love is a choice, even in the tough times, that builds a lasting love. It's that choice to love even during the difficult times. It's a choice to love even when the butterflies are gone and they've been replaced by a 
not in the pit of your stomach. It's a choice to love even when the passion and the physical attraction has disappeared. Robert Epstein, um, the guy I mentioned earlier at Harvard, has done a lot of uh, research into marriages. And, and his work suggests, like I said, that, that, romantic, uh, that rom marriages based on romantic feelings within about two years, 18 months to two years, as I said, that, that, that love begins to decline. But he looked at arranged marriages. Now hear me, I'm not, um, I'm not, what's the, I can't find my word. I'm not supporting arranged marriages. They're kind of what I'm trying to say. But what he, what he said is, when he was looking at arranged marriages, that at the five-year mark, they had a higher um, satisfaction and um, reported higher feelings of love towards their partner or higher love and their relationship, however it is he measured it, than relationships that were based on feeling and, um, feeling and emotions, right? So the couple that saw each other across the room is like, I have to spend my life with that person. That person by the five-year mark, reported way less love than the couple that was thrown together because their families are like, you two should be together. And then at the 10-year mark, they report double the amount of love, which is, really, which is really fascinating. I was gonna play us the clip, but because I'm trying to keep my sermons a little bit shorter because of the two services, and I was just a bit nervous, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a clip from Fiddler on the Roof, which is a play and a movie. Um, and, and in Fiddler on the Roof, kind of the background is that this this older man is trying to um, kind of trying to come to grips with the changing times, right? His, his kids want to choose someone based on love, and he just doesn't even have a category for it. And so there's this really powerful scene where his wife and him are in the kitchen, and he, he's like been, been ruminating on this idea of love, and he's like, do you love me? And she's like, do I love you? What are you, what are you even talking about? And she's like, do you love me? And he's, she's like, we've, and then they begin to sing to each other. We've been together for 25 years and done all these things, and there's this commitment. And at the end, there's both this realization oh, we do love one another. Now, like I said, I'm not advocating for arranged marriages, but I'm trying to reinforce that romantic passion isn't all of that. See, I believe it's the myth that love equals romance and passion, which ends up leading many of us to have miserable relationships. Because it, it bases them on unrealistic expectations. Because ultimately, and I said this before, Passion is about me and my feelings. Passion is about me and my feelings. And I want to go even further, because I think that this myth has created misery for many unmarried people as well. Because it tells single people the lie that to experience and participate in love, they must be involved in a romantic, passionate relationship. And so, so many people who aren't single, which is the majority of our church, I think we're about 70% single, feels of some way that because they're not involved in a romantic relationship, they are somehow missing out on love. And the myth, the myth continues to do harm to all sorts of relationship. Because, and and what, what, we, what we've been talking about is marriage is not a vocational calling for some of you. It's not a vocational calling for everyone. Now, some of you, you, you like had an experience with God, and for whatever reason, you've been called into the vocation of singleness. In others of you, it is a choice that has chosen you. You have not chosen. And, and Paul says, look, marriage and, and, and marriage and singleness are on equal footing. In fact, Paul would probably elevate singleness. But the thing that drives and compels us towards marriage, those things, those longings in us that drive and compel us towards marriage, they don't cease to exist in people that are single. 
There's a need for an intimacy and companionship and the need to live for someone and something beyond ourselves. And this is like, a, I'm gonna, this is a drive-by comment because I think I need a whole series and honestly, I'm not even sure what to say fully here. But the church needs to do a better job of creating spaces for deep and intimate relationships among people who are part of the community. There's, there's a whole amount of work which I, I don't want to get into fully um, but, uh, on the idea of spiritual friendships and often it gets twisted and used for something else. But I do think we as a church need to wrestle with the idea of what, is, what do deep, committed relationships look like that aren't particularly romantic? I honestly, I honestly see some of our, our single members modeling this um, to our congregation, particularly to our families. I mean, we have some single people in our church who care for other people in our church like they are family, and there's this deep commitment. And I sometimes wonder, particularly for those of us who are married, are we reciprocating that commitment and that investment in single members of our community where they become part of our families? And I, I'm kind of riffing here, and I don't like have all the answers, but I think we need to like wrestle with this. How do we provide a place of deep, committed relationships that are loving, that aren't particularly romantic? But I do want to push us just a bit further, if that's okay. Because I'm afraid the movies we watch and the stories we read and, frankly, the friends we hang out with might be selling us a false story when it comes to love and relationships. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift here from um, Paul and the Bible to Kevin and a rant. And, and I think it's okay for sometimes for pastors to have, a, a, you know, based upon experience, to have thoughts and comments and rants, but sometimes they, they merge those in with the biblical witness, and I, I want to just, like, acknowledge this is not God, this is Kevin, but here are my five rants. Soulmates are ridiculous. You just need to know that. You're smart. I know you all know that. But, but on the other hand, research shows that 70% of people believe in soulmates, so that could be one of you. If that is you, soulmates are ridiculous. The idea of soulmates is A, it's unbiblical, and B, it's a cosmic farce. Those of you who believe in soulmates, you are setting yourself up for a lifetime of misery. Once again, returning to the research, if you won't trust me or trust the Bible, maybe you'll trust science. What they've said is, what, what scientists have discovered is that people who believe in soulmates leave relationships way faster than people who don't because the first sign of trouble, you begin to believe, well, clearly, this isn't, I got this one wrong, this isn't my soulmate, let me start the process all over again. But what you find yourself in is this vicious cycle of searching for the one the one doesn't exist, and then you just end up lonely and unhappy. It's science. It's not me. Second, this, this one's all me. You're not all that. I am surrounded by all sorts of wonderful single people who are smart and attractive and just incredible people. And many of the, you... Not all of you, but many of you have expressed a desire to be in a romantic relationship, but it seems that no one is actually in a relationship, and it seems often that people have unrealistic expectations of who they should be in a relationship with. They are looking for perfection, partially, maybe it's because of our data-driven society and all the apps and all the different ways we have of meeting people. We are actually stunted because we always feel there has to be something better out there somewhere, which leads me to my third rant, which is friendships over feeling. 
We prioritize feelings. We think that feelings are the utmost good. We follow them wherever they take us. But listen to me. Friendships matter more than feelings. Stop looking for the perfect person and instead look for someone who is decent and hardworking and who you love being around and commit your life to that person. When looking for who you want to spend your life with, stop spending le- or spend less time looking for physical qualities and less time looking for that spark, those fireworks, those things that are going to fade really quickly, you'll discover, if you don't know that already. And instead, look for qualities that make a good friend and avoid qualities that make for bad friends. Number four, focus on character, not on abs. That's a Kevin original. Um, focus Focus on the character of the person, which is related to the friendship, but also focus on your own character. Are you the type of person that brings out the best in others, both friends and romantic relationships? Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you slow to anger? Do you seek the best for other people? Number five, romance isn't all that. You will not find fulfillment in romance. Oh, you may for a season, a period, you will feel as if you have found fulfillment, but that feeling will quickly fade. And it may be an adventure you get to experience at some point in your journey, but it will not last. And the overvaluing of romantic relationships will not only lead to misery in your relationships, but it will also inhibit your ability to become who God wants you to become. There's nothing wrong with romance. That's, That's fine. But if that becomes your ultimate aim and the thing that you're searching for, and that becomes the telos of your life, like the life, the aim of your life, you will miss out on everything else that God has for you. Okay, that's the end of Kevin's rant. We're going to return back to the Bible. Love doesn't look like infatuation. Infatuation may be the thing that brings two people together, but it will never be the thing that helps them cross the finish line. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. And if you're expecting the fairy tale in your relationships, you will be disappointed and happy in every relationship you have. And so as we end, I want to allow the words of Paul to wash over us. Um, I want to read 1 Corinthians 13, which is a passage many of us have heard, but I want to read it from the message um, version of the Bible so that we can hear these words afresh. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the gift of other people. I thank you for the gifts of relationship and love and all the things that make life enjoyable and bring joy to our lives and make life worth living. And I pray that you would... um, 
help these words, these ancient words of Paul to continue to speak fresh and new to us today as we, as we think about not only our romantic relationships, but as we think about our friendships and as we think about those people that we may spend the rest of our lives with. Help us not only to be looking for the person who seems to meet all of our checklists, but help us to look for the character of that person and help us to focus on our own character as we are on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.